listening, and welcome to episode 1497 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast at Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. So today we are doing a team preview podcast, and we'll be talking a little later on in the episode to James Vegan, who covers the White Sox for The Athletic. In just a moment, we'll be talking to AJ Casavell, who covers the Padres for MLB.com. And we're going to do a a team fun draft or a fun team draft just before opening day again. And I would guess that these two teams that we're talking about today will end up pretty high in the fun team draft, but Hmm. we shall see. I... I feel like one of them will and one of them won't. I think one of them's a little overrated fun-wise. Oh, really? Okay. Well, save that for next month when we get to the draft. So just one quick thing I wanted to say. I don't know whether you watched the Super Bowl or followed the Super Bowl at all last weekend. I didn't really closely, but it came to my attention because there was this infamous tweet that was sent, I believe, by 538 about the win probability at uh, a certain point in the game. So the Chiefs, who ended up winning the game over the 49ers, they were losing. They were down by 10 points with like eight minutes left or something. And so ESPN's win probability model said that the 49ers had something like a 95% chance of winning the game. And 538 tweeted it out when the Niners had a 93.8% chance to win. And that didn't happen, obviously. And there was a comeback and it was very exciting and all of that. And there was this whole kind of kerfuffle on Twitter after this where people were kind of dunking on the tweet and posting the tweet and trying to say that the tweet was wrong and the prediction was bad, even though 538's model had favored Kansas City before the game. And it was just such a, a strange, to me, use of win expectancy in that. I don't typically look at that as a prediction. I don't look at that as a forecast. Now, maybe because it's 538 and 538 does issue forecasts and people were used to that coming from them. That's how they took it. But to me, that's not the point really of win expectancy. It's not when the team that is trailing and does not have a great chance to win the game comes back to win. Then you go and say, oh, you were wrong. You were wrong. You were predicting that this other team would win. That's that's not the point. It's just a it's an empirical model. It's based on past results and it just tells you the odds basically. And if it turns out to be wrong, quote unquote, or, or a team comes back to win, That's exciting. That's the whole fun of it. That's why we have it, right? So that we can say, hey, this was an improbable comeback and you can quantify how improbable it was. I mean, yeah, that's I I agree. That's how I that's how I do it. I I mean, what? like if 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 they had tweeted that the 49ers were winning through three quarters and then the 49ers lost would it be like yeah take it back (laughs) right that's why it mystified me so much because like a it's you know a 95 percent chance does not mean that it happens 100 percent of the time means that it should happen 95 percent of the time which means that when it doesn't happen that doesn't mean the odds were incorrect It, it means it was one of those five times which Granted, like it could be wrong and it it could say that the odds of it happening are this and then it actually does happen more often or less often than that. But this is based on past games and, you know, it's the Super Bowl and and generally win expectancy models. I don't know about this one, but usually they are based on generic teams and generic players. And so in this case, you had maybe the best offensive team versus the best defensive team. I don't know if that cancels out, but maybe when you have Patrick Mahomes, your odds are actually a little bit better than the generic league-wide odds would be. But the point is that uh, it's not predicting perfectly if the favored team 
always won, then uh, it would be just completely useless. I mean, I don't know what people thought either, because it's like, well, what did you think the win probability was? What did you think the likely outcome here was when one team is winning by 10 points with not a lot of time left? Wouldn't we all agree that the team that's winning is probably going to win? <laughs> like, were you sitting there saying, no, there's a 95% chance that the team that's trailing will win? I doubt it. So, you, you know, it's it's a very complicated thing that we're all involved in with the internet because you have two different audiences at all times. You have the audience that came to you because they wanted to see what content you had made. And then there's the audience that you essentially were thrown in front of either because somebody retweeted you into their their feed or you I don't know mainly that right mm-hmm. and so if you're going to 538 to see what the chances are that the 49ers are going to win the game then you're very unlikely to take offense to that number like you're just curious to see like you go right. there because you're curious to see well what is it I, how how lopsided is this and you're happy to see it and then if it's 95% and the other team wins you go well wow that that's precisely how striking that comeback was it was 95 right, yeah. but if you didn't go to to 538 which uh, most you know many people who saw it didn't go to it it was it mm-hmm. was put in front of them then you're like why are you yelling at me about <laughs> my team's <laughs> unfavorable odds i want them to win i'm trying to stay optimistic and you're just screaming no 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 at me it's a very different experience for that person and so i'm sort of sympathetic to the person who's like don't i don't i don't tell me that i don't need to know it especially because i don't know anything probably if i'm that person i probably don't know anything about you or the um, methodology you use and for all I know, it's just total. It's just total junk. For all I know, right? And so it's a very different relationship. It's it's hard to to even put those two types of relationships in the same genre, like under mm-hmm. media. Like they're very different experiences between the consumer and the producer of it. Very mm-hmm. different relationships. Uh, so my guess is that the people who would who would be upset or who would taunt a projection would fall into the latter category and they're just saying like i didn't ask for you and now that now that i got you it's my right to sneer when when it's Mm -hmm. wrong and i guess it is their right (laughs) yeah it's i don't know whether in football there's less of a tradition of win expectancy and win probability maybe it's i know it's been around for a while but maybe it's a little less familiar to football fans than it is in baseball if you follow baseball closely at least on the internet you're very used to these things and you know what it means and what it's not trying to tell you and maybe football fans were just a little less conditioned to think of things that way but i guess it's it's just generally a difficulty with probabilistic thinking too because it's like well if the unlikely outcome happens then it's not that the model was wrong necessarily and I know in general this was an ESPN win probability model not 538 specific I believe but when 538 does make forecasts they make quite an effort to go back and show that they were well calibrated and that if they say that uh, something has a 70% chance to happen then historically it has happened at close to a 70% rate and if that's not the case then they'll try to examine why that is and fix it but Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I mean, people still yell at them about, like, you know, the 2016 presidential election and 
what happened in that <laughs> they were they were one of the ones i i think who were uh, a little less optimistic about hillary clinton's chances at least by the time the election took place but it was still like well the odds are 70 percent that she'll win and therefore when she didn't they were quote-unquote wrong even though they'd given her a lower chance than a lot of other places and that doesn't mean their model was completely correct and of course there were polling errors but their model was pricing in some potential for polling errors that's kind of a tangent but the point is that it's not just uh, based on someone's opinion or something it's based on what has actually happened in okay. a lot of games quick question on and then we can wrap this part yeah. up but let's say that you were you had a a win probability system that was was very good right let's say mm-hmm. it was perfectly calibrated and you sent out your tweet that said that the uh, 49ers were 95% likely to win the game and then they 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 lost the game and you start getting angry tweets back at you saying you know what a dumb project what a dumb what a dumb system you have you were wrong ha ha ha. Mm -hmm. would you expect those to come from Niners fans who are upset that you gave them false hope or from Kansas City fans who were upset that you didn't respect their team the latter okay yeah definitely people gloating that their team came back to win and was disrespected okay Good to know. Which is funny because you'd think they'd be in such a great mood. Right. Like, <laughs> well, no, you would think it would be a source of pride, right? You'd think or that, that they would, yeah. like, you would want the number to be higher. Like, it, the yeah, only thing right. cooler than 95 would be 99. Yes. Like, we, one of the great comebacks of all time. Like, the Patriots coming coming back from, like, 28-3 game mm-hmm. some years back, they're not, like, trying to, like, scrub the record and be like, well, it was actually, it was I think it was only 28 to. 21 if i recall like they want you to know it was 28 to 3 that was like a historic comeback so it seems like that's why i kind of wondered it you would it would be very weird to me for a a, you know for a fan to be upset that you put their team's historic comeback in perspective it Mm. would be it would seem much more in character for the fan of the team that lost to start blaming Everybody. Like I have a, uh, you know, I I have my my two my two team fantasy league, right? You know yeah. about this. Mm-hmm. And back when it started, before I was writing about baseball at all, uh, I was of course a huge Giants fan, and so was my my friend. And so we actually had a rule for those first few years before I became cynical and hardened and quit having emotions about baseball that no Giants were eligible. So it was uh, the whole league was eligible except the Giants because I didn't want to have to be in a position where I would have to root against a Giant for my own self-interest. So no Giants allowed. But you still get situations where a pitcher on your team or his team is pitching against the Giants. And... If if one of his pitchers was pitching against the Giants and threw a good game and like I was really like sad because the Giants had lost that day, I would actually get a little angry at him for having an interest in <laughs> the Giants failing. Like I would I would think you you were rooting. You were you're not a pure fan. You were rooting for them to lose, weren't you? Yeah. And I would get mad. And so if I were the 49ers right now, and I had seen my team blow this lead and I was really emotional about it and I was grasping for anything that could explain it, I would probably be, I would probably have a lot of irrational blame to, to spread around among the world, and including the algorithms. Mm-hmm. Well, the last question this prompts in me, and I don't know whether we have talked about this, I know people have asked about this, is 
would we want to see this information in real time? Do you enjoy seeing a win probability in real time? Because people have asked us whether it should be on every broadcast, whether that would be a a good thing. And I sort of have mixed emotions about that. I love looking at win probability after the fact and seeing, okay, just how improbable was that comeback. But I'm not sure that it's something I enjoy seeing in the moment to see exactly how unlikely it is that this team is going to come back to win. Because until it happens, it's just sort of discouraging. Huh. Ben, you and I have found something that we're on polar opposites about. I don't care at all about after the fact. I know that 1% outcomes are 1% likely to happen, and it does not blow my mind after the fact that they happened at all. If you have, if you have, unless it is the single greatest comeback of all time, I'm just not going to be that impressed after the fact. Whereas if I'm watching it, and I know that you're starting in that place and you have kind of given up, you are not expecting it to happen, uh, then it does mean something to me. So I'm, I am strictly an in real time win probability huh. uh, or win expectancy consumer. After the fact, I don't care. I never look. I never look. When I, see, really? when I see those game charts tweeted, those game graphs tweeted after the fact, None of them moves me ever. Huh, after I love the, the game charts. I no? know well, you and I have found we're, like we are. This is <laughs> well, the the two types of years, people on this we podcast. Finally found something. <laughs> yeah, huh. crazy. Yeah, no. I like I look up in the middle of a game a lot, but and never after. Wow. Yeah. I see what you're saying because once it's happened, you know it's happened, and you know that it was some level of improbable. But I still want to know exactly how improbable. It's not like my sense of odds are is so well calibrated that I know that was a a one percent comeback versus a three percent comeback or something like that. I I want to see the numbers, and especially. But what do you care? There have been a hundred <laughs> games like that in history. So what does it matter that one of them, in fact, did come back? What is the difference between one and three to you? Neither yeah. one is impossible. Neither one is what a, a one in a hundred thing happening one in a hundred times is no less probable than a three in a hundred thing happening three in a hundred times. And you just <laughs> saw one of those one or one of those three. Sometimes there's a moderate fun fact where, okay, it's the most improbable comeback of the season or that this team has had since X date. There, that I want to know that kind of thing, I think, because I feel like in real time, I have a pretty good sense. Like if this team is losing by a few runs and it's late in the game, like I, I know it's very long odds that they're going to come back and seeing the number is only going to make me want to tune out. It's going to remind me that there's probably no point in my watching this. Whereas when it has actually happened, like I'd rather fool myself into thinking, okay, there's some chance here. They're not completely out of it. I don't want to be reminded of how improbable it is. And then once it happens, or maybe once a rally starts or something, at least like once it gets close, then then I'd want to see, okay, hey, look, we came a long way. And when you have those back and forth games where it looks like one team's about to win and then the other team looks like it's about to win. And so you get the win probability graphs that are just these jagged cliffs and valleys. I love those. Because it's a story stat, right? It's designed to capture how you felt during the game and preserve that for posterity. So if it is during the game, if you're currently watching the game, then you already feel that way. I don't think you need it as much in the moment. Whereas when it's over and the emotions have subsided so 
somewhat, then you can look back and you can think, oh yeah, that's how I felt. That moment right there where the line leaps up or plunges downward, that was the source of that excitement or unhappiness I felt. And it's also useful because if you weren't watching the game, you can get a pretty good sense of what it was like to watch it by looking at that graph. It's not quite the same, of course, but I could just eyeball that line and it kind of encapsulates how that experience felt to those people in the moment if I wasn't one of them. But no, not, I not feel for like, you. I feel like we have to get we have to call Meg right now. <laughs> we can't we can't wait until the next episode. Like I need to know what the majority opinion on this podcast is. All right. Let me see if she's around. All right. <laughs> Okay, so it turns out that Meg is available, and she joins us now to be the arbiter in this important discussion. Sam, which of us is going to pose this question to Meg? Can we do so in an unbiased way? Yeah, uh, I've been thinking about it. I've been trying to figure out how to put it. I, I think so. I think that it's it can be put in a fairly unbiased way. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so, you know, win expectancy... Sure. You've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> We're uh, Ben and I have different philosophies about whether it is better, whether this is a, a stat that is better in-game while you're watching so that you understand the odds of what you are seeing, or if it's better after the game so that you understand the odds of what you have just seen. Uh, the inspiration for this was the, the 49ers blowing a 95% win expectancy. And so is in, in a case like that, is it more moving to you to see that they are 95% likely to win or that the Chiefs are 5% likely to win at that point in the game? Or is it more moving to you to see the incredible jag that happens on a win expectancy chart after the comeback has occurred? So yeah, my answer is going to irritate both of you so badly because yes, the answer is yes. And here's the criteria. So if if I am a fan, I don't want to see it live because that is not the way that I want to experience fandom because I engage with sports professionally. And so then when I get to be a fan, I don't want it to be quite so rational. And also it's very stressful to have it ticking there like a heartbeat that might go wildly awry. So I enjoyed very much as a as a Seahawks fan watching the win expectancy graph for the the Super Bowl because I don't care about either of those teams in a f- invested fan kind of way. And mm-hmm. I feel that way when I'm watching like say playoff baseball, it's like, "Oh, I get to watch this graph move up and down." And then because I hate myself when I am a fan, I like to see the dramatic spike after when I already feel really bad about myself. So like uh, I I looked at the win expectancy graph after the Seahawks lost to the Patriots with a goal line pick like immediately after the game ended. But I didn't want to know it in the moment because I just wanted to be present and I didn't want to take myself out of it with a bunch of numbers and rationality. Uh <laughs> But but then I had to look after to just get a, a real sense of what the, the depths of my despair would be. So I'm splitting the difference. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah huh. so you're kind of acknowledging that you are two different people. There's fan Meg and then there's, there's sports observer Meg. Yeah. And each of those has different preferences. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And in, in baseball, it's, you know, those, those can line up really closely because while my Mariners fandom is largely dormant, it, it does still exist somewhat. But also the Mariners are bad. So I already have 
sadness and despair in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I don't mind engaging with it closely because, as I've said many times before, you know, baseball is like just a low stakes way for me to feel sad. So in baseball fandom, it's a little different. But for something like football, where I still actively experience fandom, you know, I still get exercised on behalf of my guys. uh, It's a little bit different. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you uh, didn't settle it, and I don't think that Ben. I don't think either Ben or I wanted to hurt the other. Who 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 just who sided with which thing? I'm the after the fact guy. Yeah, so. and I'm, I'm in game. I yeah. yeah I he, Ben Ben uh, has a a an emotional resistance to knowing in the middle of a game. He finds that it makes him less interested when okay. he knows how unlikely something is. And I find that post game graphs to be unimpressive not not interesting to me the analogy that i was thinking of while we were connecting with you was like if after the lottery has been done it's not impressive that somebody won you know that somebody's going to win like the odds are that every lottery ticket is going to lose but one is going to win and so it's not like wow did you hear someone won like that's the whole point it's a one in six million chance is going to happen out of six million tickets sold whereas if you're holding a lottery ticket before the drawing, there is still that suspense of like, is this the one? Am I holding the one? And so I feel a little bit of that way when when there's, but I also like, I like just knowing if it, I really like knowing when a game shifts from 49 to 51 because there's base runners on now. Sure. Or going back the other way because now, you know, an out has been made. I like seeing those subtle shifts between 40 and 60 as well. So I like to monitor it during the game. I think I think part of the appeal for me of the post game check as a fan is you know fandom is all about feelings and feelings are good and we should engage with feelings but you can't stay sad about a thing forever and part of what helps to transition to something more like normal emotional regulation is re-engaging your brain and so I think it it's like a helpful changing tracks kind of beginning for me whereas like when I'm observing a game just because I'm like it an interested but dispassionate party, the 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 up and down and the shifting around that you're describing is that part is cool because I'm already sort of disengaged emotionally because it's you know it's the it's the Astros and the Nationals and I'm not a fan of either of those franchises so I I think that's part of it I don't know why but I would have thought you each had a different I would have had you flipped mm. and I don't huh. know why. I'm gonna think. Of, I'm gonna think about that because it's gonna tell me something about what I think of each of you, but I won't tell you what it is. So you're just gonna have to sit there and worry about it for the rest of our friendship. All right. Well, thanks for weighing in. No problem. <laughs> all right. That was the cameo from Meg. You can all let us know what you think. We're all right in some way. I guess that's what I will take away from this. So we will take a quick break, and Sam and I will be back with AJ Casavell to talk about the Padres. Buddy. So young, and you don't get me now. I feel so guilty, and you are chocolate brown. Chocolate brown, I can't play not too long. I will make it up to you. 
right, let's start with the Padres. And to talk Padres baseball, we are joined now by AJ Castell, who covers the Padres for MLB.com. Hey, AJ, how's it going? It's good. How are you guys? We're doing all right. So before we talk about players who are on the Padres, maybe we should talk about one player who is not, because his absence from the Padres has been in the news this week. As we record, no one has officially traded for Mookie Betts, but the Padres are definitely not trading for him, it seems. So... How close did they come to getting him? Do you have any sense of what package was under discussion? And why do you think that fell through? And is there a a good reason that it did? Yeah, I don't think it ever got close, per se, in the sense that, like, both teams kind of felt like it might happen. But it was definitely close enough where, like, kind of throughout the past week, week and a half, I had people within the organization saying, hey, there's some momentum here. and This is the thing that might happen. Because I think with A.J. Preller, you hear about a lot of different rumors all the time and a lot of them don't have legs. It's just AJ calling guys or guys calling him because he has the good prospects to trade. And so this one was real. And the package was something along the lines of Will Myers plus some cash for part of his salary. And then a a package of prospects slash young major leaguers, which if I had to guess would have been led by Luis Camposano, who is kind of the top guy in their second tier. If you want to qualify the first tier as Mackenzie Gore, Luis Patino, C.J. Abrams, guys who are off limits, especially for a guy who Mookie Betts would, would have only been a, a, a one-year guy for the Padres. And so it, it seems like based on what the Dodgers ended up giving up for Betts, like the Red Sox had two different avenues for what they would do to get rid of Betts. And one of them was take this package of, of prospects slash young major leaguers, which might have included, I don't know, Josh Naylor or, or Manuel Margot or Joey Lucchese. That was probably a better package, but it doesn't include David Price, and they don't end up getting under the luxury tax threshold without taking on David Price. And so that's where I think this whole thing went awry for the Padres. And I think ultimately it could have been it it, it could have been a deal that came to fruition if if the Dodgers weren't involved, but the, the Red Sox kind of knew what they wanted to do, and that was to get under the luxury tax threshold, and the Dodgers helped them do that the best. It's one of those situations where if the Padres had gotten him, they would have gotten him. They also would have kept the Dodgers from getting him and vice versa. And that doesn't always happen that way where it's like it's kind of like a two for one where you're making your your main rival worse at the same time. But I kind of wonder whether I'm thinking about that wrong because maybe the Padres don't really see the Dodgers as catchable anyway. And they see themselves as, you know, essentially playing for 90 plus wins for a bunch of years and, you know, some wild cards and a lot of happy seasons where they're in pennant races and not starting the season looking at 70 games. So do you think that they view the Dodgers as their main kind of competitive rival right now? Or is that sort of out of range given just how kind of unstoppable the Dodgers seem as an organization for the next few years? I think it's a fair question. And for for the span of what Mookie Betts contract is, which is just one more season, I don't think the Padres are even close to being the Dodgers rival, even if they had gotten Mookie Betts, I don't know that that puts them within 10 wins of the Dodgers, who are probably a 100-win team again. And so I, in the short term, that that is one way to look at it, is that it, a year from now, if the, if the Padres progress and get better and these young guys do what they're kind of supposed to do, the, pitcher, the pitching staff becomes kind of Chris Paddock, Mackenzie Gore, maybe Luis Patino – and they didn't give up prospects for Mookie Betts. Maybe they're in a better spot. That being said, I think there's a lot of people here that want to that want to see the gap closed on the Dodgers. And I don't think the Padres long term view the Dodgers as uncatchable. They just probably 
view them as uncatchable in 2020 with or without Mookie Betts. And so it's 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 a steep hill to climb when you're playing in the National League West, especially given the resources the Dodgers have. But the, the sense that they are losing out on this guy and he's going to a division rival, I think that's probably a little bit more fan-driven because the fans here are so sick of the Dodgers winning the division every single year than it is we need to catch the Dodgers in the National League West because if we're being realistic, they probably weren't going to do that anyway. So we'll be talking about the White Sox a little later in this episode, and these teams are sort of in a similar boat, I think, in that they haven't been good for a while. They put together strong farm systems, have a lot of compelling, young, promising players, some of whom have already broken through, and they've made some outside investments and signings and trades. And so I think the Padres kind of, well, they beat the White Sox to Manny Machado last winter, and of course there was the Hosmer signing, and so they have made some investments this season. They didn't spend a ton of money. They got Drew Pomeranz. They made the Luis Arias trade and got Trent Grisham and Zach Davies from the Brewers. Were they very much in the running for other big free agents? Did they consider spending more than they did? Obviously, they, they went after Mookie, so they felt like there was still room to improve there. So did they come close to anything else? And do they feel disappointed by their winter? Or was this pretty much what they had in mind? I think they would have probably called the winter a relative victory if if things kind of hadn't gone off the rails and Mookie gone to the Dodgers division rival, as we kind of said. It's interesting the way their winter went because the beginning of the winter, you look at the team and the first thing you kind of think that they needed was starting pitching because there were so many question marks on this pitching staff. AJ Preller, even at the deadline last season when they didn't get Noah Syndergaard or anyone else for the rotation, he said something along the lines of, well, we'll basically get it in the offseason. And then they went out and really didn't do anything to shore up their rotation. They focused all their energies on building a really good bullpen, which I, I know bullpens are volatile, but I think it might be the best bullpen in the National League. And then they really tried to shore up their offense with with Grisham and Tommy Pham, and they added Jerickson Profar. And these are all – the Tommy Pham trade is probably is the big one, but the rest of the moves were just to kind of get a little better around the edges. They were all – the interesting part is that they're all win-now moves. And so – Trading for Tommy Pham, you get two years of him when you could have had four years of Hunter Renfro and six years of Xavier Edwards and trading or signing Drew Pomerantz. His best seasons are now and in the next, or maybe the next year or two. And I think AJ Preller in the past has kind of been building for the future when you judge his offseason moves and even their pursuit of Mookie Betts. It's pretty clear that, that he would like 2020 to be the year that this window for contention, or at least that they kind of push for that wild card spot. And his offseason moves kind of indicated that. And then they they didn't get Mookie Betts. But I think that it, it's telling just the sense that they were after Mookie Betts. Whereas I don't know that in the past, even though they went after Hosmer and they went after Machado, those were with a longer term vision in mind. This one was very clearly a let's win in 2020. And that's that's what they want to do. I kind of find it very hard to assess the Padres because, you know, like last year, we thought that they would be, you know, pretty good, kind of take some steps forward and then be awesome this year and sure enough halfway through the season they were pretty good and a bunch of great things had happened and there were some can some players who had really taken big steps forward and everything looked right and then they were like just about the worst team in baseball from the rest of the season and i don't know what caused that why wh why what happened in the second half like how much does that reset all of the expectations that we had for this team or reassess who they are, what they are, what they're capable of, versus it just being three bad months. So can you tell me what happened in the second half? 
Yeah, I think that's a question the Padres front office has kind of been grappling with all winter. Like, is this the version of the team that was that was pretty good in the first half and legitimately really exciting? Or is this the version of the team that's one of the worst in baseball in the last two months? And to me, it's, it was a bunch of different factors, all of which kind of piled on top of each other and became and turned into the second half Padres. First, they kind of struggled out of the out of the gate in the second half, and and they were on that buyer seller fringe at the at the All Star break. But by the deadline, they were kind of out of it, and then they traded away Fran Mil Reyes, who was who everyone loved, and it was a, a fun power hitter and a, a guy who don't want to overstate the importance of a clubhouse presence. But everyone there loved him, and he was a he was their number four hitter. And all of a sudden, they trade him and don't get any big league pieces back for it. And I think that was a blow. And then two weeks later, Fernando Tetis Jr. is out for the season. And as much as a 20-year-old can be a catalyst for a team, the whole entire Padres offense kind of looked to him to be that guy. And those two things happened. And I think the Padres were in it for so long and they maybe weren't that good. And as soon as things started spiraling, they just they just kind of couldn't stop. And Manny Machado wasn't who he was the first four months. Eric Hosmer was okay at times during the first part of the season. He struggled down the stretch. They fired their manager in September. And it just kind of all seemed to go off the rails. And so if I have, if I have to assess it, I think they're probably closer to the team that they were in the first half of the season. Another factor is they had to shut Chris Paddock down toward the end of the season because of his innings limitations and so they're probably closer to the team they were in the first half but they weren't that good but the second half maybe allowed them to go into the offseason and reassess some things and reassess maybe the value of Hunter Renfro and whether they needed to upgrade their bullpen and their offense and so they've done a few things to do that and ultimately if if the second half forced the Padres hand to go out and get better this winter maybe it's viewed as a success long term. And, of course, the Padres were without Fernando Tatis Jr. for the last six weeks or so of the season, which was disappointing, even though they were out of the running by then. I think we have anointed him the most exciting or most watchable player of 2019. He was not only exciting, but just really great. And I wonder whether he maybe set the bar even a little bit too high in that rookie year in terms of expectations, because he hit so well, and he did lead the majors in BABIP. He had the highest BABIP in baseball. And even though he may be just a high Babbitt guy, he's probably not a 410 Babbitt guy. So will there be a little bit of offensive regression? And I'm also curious about his defense because he does make spectacular plays. He clearly has athleticism and tools and talent. But the metrics aren't great, and I think for obvious reasons, he makes a lot of errors, he throws a lot of balls away, which seems like something that, you know, maybe if you have the raw ability, that will just come with time, and he's still just 21 years old. So what do you think the immediate outlook is for him in 2020, and I guess beyond? Yeah, I listened to your your podcast where you guys were creating an award, and I, I <laughs> would like to cast my vote for uh, Fernando Tatis for most exciting player in baseball. Yeah. He is he is spectacular. I, I think, like, obviously on the Babbitt front, there's a case for regression. But I also think there's probably room for him to improve his exit velocity a little bit and some some of the things kind of around the fringes. And so I don't think he's going to have a 410 Babbitt, but he might strike out a little bit less. Or I, I, I just think that one, one of the interesting things someone told me last season when, when he was kind of on that tear and it did seem like there might have been a little bit of luck involved was the way when he missed, when he didn't. When he didn't connect, he just had this uncanny knack for either popping it into right field and blooping it in for a hit, even when he didn't crush the ball, or hitting a grounder into the hole between third and short, and then he flies down the line and he's safe. So I think 
he, he's probably going to regress from that BABIP. No one stays at no one stays above 400, but I expect it to be really good. Uh, and I expect his numbers to be really good again. I think on the defensive side of the ball, there was there was some concern because his numbers, his metrics were not very good and he did make some spectacular plays. So there was a case of are we are, are we maybe overrating what he does defensively because what we're seeing doesn't match up with what the numbers say. And I think the answer there is yes, but the other answer is that he's a 20-year-old playing shortstop every day in the major leagues. And from the people I talk to who I don't I don't think would lie to me within the Padres, they basically say that, yeah, these are pretty correctable mistakes that he's making. He's just, generally speaking, he tries to do a little too much or he'll, he'll lay out for, and then maybe he throws the ball to first base on a play that he probably didn't need to throw the, throw the ball to first base on and... It, and he throws it into the second row because he's rushing his throw and and that's an error and that counts against his that counts against him. So I think it's it's probably down to decision making defensively. And I don't know that he will be Angelton Simmons or I don't know that he'll be an outstanding defensive shortstop. But I think the Padres still there was some debate a few years ago as to whether he could be a shortstop or whether he was maybe be, best suited for third base. And the Padres haven't nothing they saw last season convince them that he's not their shortstop of the future and there's just room to grow which I think there is with any 20 year old shortstop it's a really interesting question because like the fact that he's 20 I'm not sure what to make of that because normally we would say uh, I mean the the common wisdom is that defensive aging curves don't go up and then down that just sort of goes down immediately that like wherever you are you're getting worse tomorrow because you're aging and aging costs you speed and it costs you arm strength but that probably applies to the thousands of major leaguers in history, but very, very few of them are playing shortstop at 20 in the majors. And so I don't know if the aging curve necessarily speaks to what 20-year-olds who were playing shortstop in the majors do, because the overwhelming majority of data points are players who were playing shortstop in, you know, high A when they were 20, or who didn't debut until they were 23 or 24. So with Tatis, particularly, it seems like the there's been a lot of discussion about that in the last couple of weeks because of the StatCast's new infield outs above average show him being not just kind of below average, but one of the worst defensive infielders in the game. And so I'm curious to know whether, I mean, you said he's probably not going to be Andrelton Simmons. Uh, you watched him play and saw the tools. And if it is simply a matter of making better decisions or getting more used to game speed or not trying to do as much, what do you think the ceiling is there? Is it potentially something, I don't know, maybe not Andleton Simmons, nobody is, but is it potentially something closer to a gold glove standard or is that outlandish? And then meanwhile, at the same time we're having that conversation, there's talk about how the Padres should get Francisco Lindor. And if that happens, would they move Tatis off shortstop right away? Could it be just as, as likely that he doesn't play shortstop anymore? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I if if they were to go out and get Francisco Lindor, and I know these conversations have happened. I think Francisco Lindor is the one playing shortstop and then Tatis. I mean, Tatis is so good and so athletic and he has the tools. He could probably play second or center or wherever else. That being said, I don't think the, the, the Francisco Lindor rumors are probably a little unfounded in that they never really when those talks were happening, they were never all that serious. And so what's Fernando Tatis's ceiling? I think it's probably not gold glove caliber. There are people who see the tools and maybe think it could be, but it's, but if, but if Fernando Tatis Jr. is an average defensive shortstop, which he, I think he very easily could be as soon as he 
maybe harnesses some of his decision-making. I I think part of it is he's just so athletic and gets to so many balls that, that other guys, that other guys might not, that in some cases he's not, he's not prepared for what to do when he gets there. And so I, I think if he's an average defensive shortstop, which that's what I would peg him. And I don't count myself as, as a great evaluator of defensive talent, but if he's an average defensive shortstop contributing everything he does on the bases and obviously at the plate, then that's an extremely valuable player, and the Padres have him for his prime. Yeah, I would guess that even though what Sam says is true, that it seems like defense just tends to decline pretty early, that maybe if the source of your defensive struggles is just reliability, is error-making, is decision-making, I would guess that that might be something that could improve, whereas just raw foot speed or arm strength or or range might not be able to improve on the whole. So I'd be more optimistic about him personally. So I left out a couple of trades uh, in my litany of offseason transactions. Didn't mention the Jerickson Profar trade, didn't mention the Tommy Pham trade, which is a big one. So Pham is an outfielder. This already was kind of a crowded outfield. It has been for a while, and clearly the Padres were interested in adding yet another outfielder to this mix. So where does that leave Will Myers? Because they seem pretty eager to get rid of him or or package him with someone else in order to get bets. And he was benched, at least at times, last season. And it seems like he's just sort of stagnated and been leapfrogged by younger players. And yet they did sign him to that extension. So what is his outlook? Well, he's still on the trade block. It feels like he's been on the trade block for like three years. Yeah. I think the outfield, Fam is the left fielder, and Fam is kind of the guy that the Padres offense hasn't really had, like an on-base threat who, they finished, before last season, they were last in baseball and on-base percentage for five straight seasons, which obviously isn't isn't a recipe to, for winning baseball. Last year, I think they finished 25th. Fam, Fam is that on-base, everyday outfielder that they had been looking for forever, and that leaves the other two spots open, and the way I view it is there's six guys for those spots, Will Myers is definitely on the roster, but he, if if he doesn't come out and play like 2016 All-Star Will Myers, he's probably destined to be a platoon in right field, and he's probably destined to maybe share that with with Trent Grisham or with Josh Naylor or Franchi Cordero. And, and I think Manuel Margot is kind of in the same boat as a platoon. I could easily see Tommy Pham as the everyday left fielder, and the other two outfield spots just go to a left, a pretty simple left-right platoon. And ultimately, I think if Will Myers... Will Myers will dictate what the Padres do. If he's hitting like the player who won rookie of the year or who was an all-star in 2016, then they'll play him every day. But he hasn't been that guy for three years. And he's and there's not a whole lot of reason to believe that that he's going to all of a sudden turn things around. And so he's still on the trade block because obviously the Padres would like to get out from under that contract. But uh, his performance will probably dictate the way the Padres go with the rest of their entire outfield situation. I'm curious about the Garrett Richards plan. So they signed him to a two-year deal knowing that he basically wouldn't pitch the first year. And then they would uh, have a pitcher who's pretty established when he's healthy. He's very good uh, for the second year. And I don't know how much information one can glean from the first year when you know the first year is likely to be mostly inactive. He did appear late in the season, so he got to a major league mound. Was there anything in particular that the Padres were looking for throughout the rehab process or in his sort of fake debut late in the season when the Padres were out of it and Richards was just uh, kind of making those appearances that tells them one way or another whether this two-year gamble is set to pay off? Well, I think they were looking at the 
fastball velocity. And then this, he's obviously always been a high spin pitcher, whether that was back to where it was. And for the most part, it was. And so that leads to plenty of optimism. He wasn't very good in those last few starts, numbers-wise, but he showed he looked kind of like Garrett Richards looked when he was a really good pitcher. And so that was always the gamble. I think there's a lot of uncertainty still. I don't. I still don't think the Padres necessarily know what they're going to get, but the fact that they have him to kind of pencil into that rotation, at the very least, the, ro- the rotation is is thin, but it's not as thin as it was last season when Chris Paddock just came in and made the rotation out of spring training because Garrett Richards is back at the very least, and you don't know what you're going to get from him, but there's a chance you get a really good starting pitcher. And Denelson Lamette is is almost, I mean, he's obviously a lot younger than Garrett Richards, but he's in the same boat. He's coming off Tommy John surgery, and he is a pitcher with really good stuff who we don't know how he's going to handle his return. And he he showed pretty well in the last couple months last season. So, yeah, the Garrett Richards signing was a risk, and I, I think they always kind of pointed to 2020 as as the year they wanted to make things happen when they signed him last season. I, I think they basically write off the numbers that he had during the end of the season, the fact that he came back and was and at least looked like Garrett Richards in terms of the way his pitches moved and, and his fastball velocity is encouraging. Have the Padres and Padres fans resigned themselves to Eric Hosmer being who he is at this point? It's funny, for most of his career, he kind of alternated disappointing and somewhat encouraging seasons, and now he's just had back-to-back disappointing ones. He hasn't really seemed to change anything significant. He still hits a ton of grounders. Has he made any effort? Is it for lack of trying, or is he just not able to do it? And if this is just kind of who he is, then how do you expect the rest of his Padres tenure to play out? Yeah, he made the effort to make the changes last season, and I, he at, at one point, he's never going to be a high launch angle guy, but I think it's fair to expect him at least to be better than what he's been in San Diego because he's been better than what he's been in the past. When he's Even when he's at like seven or eight average degrees as opposed to zero or negative one, he's a pretty good hitter because he hits the ball hard. And so he made those changes. It felt like early in the season last year, and then in the second half of the season, it just whatever was working for him stopped working, and he kind of became Eric Hosmer again, the Eric Hosmer that we've gotten with the Padres so far. So I think there's a there's there's some resignation to who Eric Hosmer is. There's also the question of whether he's and he's obviously Eric Hosmer, World Series winner, 144 million dollar free agent, but he might be better suited as a platoon piece at first base because he does really hit right-handed pitching pretty well. And he, if he's in your lineup every day against righties, that's a that's a good bat to have. And with the Padres in the two seasons since he signed here, he's got something like a 587 OPS against lefties. And if the Padres want to be competitive this year, which is seemingly what they've been building toward, it's it might be in their best interest to find that match at first base as much as they would prefer not to be paying $20 million to a guy who's only playing three quarters of the games or is only starting three quarters of the games. If that's if, if Eric Hosmer doesn't improve against left-handed pitching, I would assume that the best course of action would be to play him exclusively against righties. I just want to go back to the uh, who these Padres are in light of their second half question because Kirby Yates last year was you know the best the best reliever in baseball and you mentioned that the Padres have built one of the best bullpens in baseball and they they held on to him they kept him at the trade deadline uh, he's a free agent after this year and he will be a very important part of this Padres team this year so if they're competitive then they're going to be extremely happy they had him. And if they're not competitive, they probably, I mean, a a team that wasn't competitive would usually look at their elite level closer who's one year away from free agency and say, oh, well, that's a pretty good 
person to trade this offseason. Do you think that if they had known what was going to happen in the second half or after the trade deadline last year, they would have kept Yates at that point? Or had they seen the final two months coming, do you think Yates would be somewhere else right now? That's a really interesting question that I hadn't thought of. And off off the top of my head, I would say he'd probably still be a Padre. And I, I think there is some desire for Yates to be extended. I don't know how long that would be, maybe only a couple more years because he is a, he, he is in his 30s. And so I, I think Kirby Yates, the Padres have a good young bullpen and they have a lot of really interesting arms who are younger than 25 years old. Andres Munoz is a guy who's about to turn 21 or just turned 21 and he throws 100 miles an hour and maybe he's the closer of the future. I think Kirby Yates is so kind of steady in the way he approaches everything and so respected by the rest of the pitching staff that the Padres kind of value having him there to lead this group of really good young relievers. And they had also looked at 2020 as a year they might start competing for for a, for a wild card spot. And so having Kirby Yates obviously helps you accomplish that. Now, if they're out of it and not competitive at the at the trade deadline, I have to think he might be a he might be a trade piece. But for now, and and looking back on last season, I don't think the Padres regret keeping Yates at all because of potentially what he could bring this season. New managers are going to be a theme of this team preview podcast series because I think a third of teams change managers this offseason or hired new managers for the usual reasons and also for sign-stealing related reasons. So Padres are the first team with a new manager we've talked about. Tell us about Jace Tinkler. How and why did he get the job and what should we expect from him? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of curious too. I want to see what kind of in-game philosophy he has. I want to see what kind of clubhouse philosophy he has. I think he's a pretty down-to-earth guy and someone that, I mean, he speaks Spanish that he can relate to a lot of guys in in that clubhouse. And that's useful. He's young. He's 38 years old. And there's there's been some comparison to the Andy Green hire a few seasons ago because he's a first-time manager in his late 30s. Uh, without a whole lot of name recognition, uh, but honestly, he's he's probably Andy Green was the third base coach on uh, for for a few years in Arizona. Jace Tingler spent a few spent time as a field coordinator and he spent time on the major league bench, but he's got significantly less experience than Andy Green. So if I'm looking at this, it, it to me seems like a pretty classic AJ Preller out of the box thinking kind of decision because there were other bigger name, more well-known candidates like Ron Washington was obviously the one that that might have come down to the final two. But AJ has his guys for better or worse. And and he's and in the past, it's it's been for better several times. He wanted Fernando Tatis Jr. He wouldn't stop till he got him and he got him. And he wanted Eric Hosmer, wouldn't stop till he got him and he got him. And so there, it, it kind of goes both ways. But it's interesting because I think A.J. Preller's really staked his job on Jace Tingler. And if the Padres aren't very good this season, I think A.J. Preller's going to be in a lot of hot water very fast. So Jace is a, is a smart guy, a bright guy. I There's obviously challenges coming into the big leagues for the first time, managing in the big leagues for the first time. But they built this kind of veteran coaching staff around him. And I think uh, I, I think that could help in a big way, too. Is Petco Park still something that hitters dwell on, that people talk about a lot? Do the Padres plan anything differently because of that? I know that they moved the fences in several seasons ago, and it seemed like it was not playing as extreme in the pitcher's direction for a few years there, although it fluctuates from year to year, and it seems like in 2019 it sort of played as a pitcher's park again. But is it something where you even have to consider, oh, this guy's going to Petco Park, or we want to construct our team a certain way because it's Petco Park, or has it kind of moved out of that category 
I think it's out of the category of like so extreme that you have to worry about hitters going there and no pit and pitchers are just going to automatically be good. But there's definitely it's definitely still skewed toward pitchers. If there's anything it does benefit though, hitting wise, it's righty pole hitters. The Western Metal Building and it and it is a little shorter down the left field line than that right center field gap, which might make it tough tough on some left handed batters. And so I think. There's not there's not a whole lot of planning that goes into the Padres have to play a certain way because Petco Park is just such a pitcher's park. I think that probably ended when they moved the fences in five or six years ago, but it's it still skews toward pitchers. And so I, when you look at some of the numbers for some of the hitters, there you do have to keep that in mind a little bit. And I think the same holds true when some pitchers burst onto the scene and they're really good at Petco Park. They are probably getting an advantage from playing here. And I think the last thing I want to ask about is Austin Hedges, who's a, a player that I've followed for years because of his framing ability, which became clear even before he made the majors. And then it seemed like he had learned to hit at least a little bit in 2018. And I remember Jeff blogging about him and it seemed like something was different. But then in 2019, he went back to really not hitting at all, even worse than before. And he still is a, a great asset defensively. And I, I wonder what his future looks like, because especially if we're talking about robot umps potentially just being a, a few seasons down the road, he would be as impacted by that as, as any player. So is there any offensive upside left here? And is that something that kind of looms on the horizon for him, if not for the Padres? Yeah, I have a hard time seeing offensive upside given that we now have like a big enough sample that he's he kind of just is Austin Hedges. He probably could be better than what he was last season. But I, I still and I, I grapple with what's really important in catcher value. And obviously framing is incredibly important. But I know the pitchers love pitching to him. And part of that is because of the framing. But he also calls a really good game. And so I wonder if if robot umps come during his career and if. He's like you said, he's as impacted by that as anyone. Is he is there still a place in the game for a guy who's as savvy as him behind the plate just because of the way he the effect he might have on pitchers outside of what he does to get them strikes? And so I don't know the answer to that. I do know that we had this conversation a few years ago about robot umps. And he said, I think it was kind of it was half joking. It was probably 90 percent joking. He said, if they bring robot umps in, I'm I'm done if they bring robot. He doesn't want robot umps. He thinks. And he's under the impression, and this is not, it's obviously not true if you look in the rule book, but he thinks a strike is a strike, and part of a strike is how you catch it. And that's what I would want my catcher to think when it clearly is now, even though it's not in the rule book, you can, you can trick umpires, and that's perfectly legal to do so. And so, uh, I, I'm just curious to, to see maybe how he responds this spring, because that'll obviously be a thing that's asked of him. And, also, what his what his value is if that if robot umps become a thing because he will be impacted by it more than anyone and I think he already kind of is playing second fiddle in San Diego a little bit because Francisco Mejia can hit and he's he's growing into that role as as maybe not an everyday catcher but sixty forty he gets the sixty percent of the playing time and Austin Hedges is still clearly in the way baseball's played in twenty twenty a really valuable piece and so that's gonna that's always been. Basically, since they got Francisco Mejia, that's been one of the biggest storylines around the Padres is what what they do at catcher with two guys who are so different. And this spring, I'm curious to see how it plays out. 
Yeah. He would probably be pretty unaffected by the robot umps. He'd be just fine. Might even be a good thing for him. Yeah, so <laughs> we always end by asking for a win total prediction. So what do you expect? What should Padres fans expect? What number do you foresee? I foresee 81 and 81. And uh-huh. if I had to go one way, either above or below 500, I would probably skew above 500. I think there's reasons to be optimistic. I just think that the way the pitching staff is constructed, the rotation is going to cost them some games and having a first-time manager, even if Jace Tingler goes on to have this great career late in games, I think as a first-time manager, he might cost them a few games too. And so uh, if I had to guess, I think 81 and 81, which is an 11-game improvement on last year. I also think that there are seasons in which the Padres win 81, 83, 85 games that you could view as a success if guys like Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino come up and are really good. And if Fernando Tatis develops and puts himself in maybe into the MVP conversation. And so I'm going 81 and 81. I probably would have gone a significant amount higher if they had gotten Mookie Betts, but they did not. And I I think the future is probably pretty bright, but it's probably closer to 2021 and 22. Uh-huh. So if you nail it and they do win 81, it's been 10 years since the Padres' last winning season, and that would not be a winning season. Would there be a lot of angst among the fan base? Would they think we're behind where we should be or where we thought we would be a few years ago? Or would that be seen as, okay, well, it's progress, and this is just the, the bridge year to when we really start winning? I think that that's partially dependent on how they get to 81. And mm-hmm. It would it would definitely be seen with angst in that team like this fan base really 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 wants to go to the playoffs. But if they get to eighty one, if they get to eighty one, and the reason they lose eighty one games is because maybe Garrett Richards isn't Garrett Richards, and maybe Joey Lucchese struggles a little bit. Guys that like you know going forward, you're going to have answers in the rotation with Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino, and and maybe the reason the offense struggles a little bit is because the catching situation isn't fully resolved and Luis Camposano is is the answer there long term. There are there are paths to a successful 81 win not a successful 81 win season but an 81 win season that's palatable but the overarching theme, I think, if they win 81 games is probably going to be disappointment. Well, even if they win only 81, they'll look good doing it because the brown and gold is back. The classic Padres uniforms resurrected, which I think everyone is happy about, including non-Padres fans. But Padres fans especially feel like the identity of the franchise has been restored in some sense, along with those traditional colors. So they've got that going for them, which is nice. You can read about the Padres all season long. AJ will be writing about them at MLB.com. And you can find him on Twitter at his name, AJ Caspell. AJ, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk to James Vegan about the White Sox. All right, we are back and we're happy to be 
joined now by James Vegan, who is the lead writer for The Athletic Chicago on the White Sox. And we're going to talk about the White Sox now. Hey, James. Hey, how's it going? All right. So the White Sox were busy this winter, and they kept you busy. They made a lot of moves. They signed a bunch of guys, Yasmany Grandal and Dallas Keuchel and Edwin Encarnacion and Steve Ciszek and Gio Gonzalez and... Then they brought back Jose Abreu and extended him and extended Luis Robert, and the moves went on and on. So do you think the White Sox set out to be as active as they were, and do you think they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish? I think they set out to be as active as they were. I think they probably did more or pulled off more than they probably would have projected as a reasonable expectation going forward. I don't know if they necessarily thought that they would be able to get I think they would have been fine. Just obviously, Grandal was their central target. I think they probably would have been fine piecing together a DH platoon uh, outside of that, and maybe the Edwin Encarnacion thing is a bit of a extra gratis that they didn't necessarily know, or 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 they had a certainly a backup plan of if they weren't able to convert. I think relief was something that was definitely something they were looking out for, but not the top priority of that they actually had to get done. And so that's why C-Sheck went from somebody that they literally called like five minutes after the World Series ended, according to, to him, <laughs> and then didn't actually sign until like three months later when they had knocked off every other single goal. As many moves as they had, they also had uh, traded for Nomar Mazzara, which seemed like right. a very kind of more of the discount uh, option for, for solving right field. But in lieu of all the other stuff that got done, I, I think it's probably more palatable to say like this is if if he's like we're hoping that he's going to be a cleanup hitter or, or a number five hitter, or maybe all the things you heard about Nomar Mazzara three, four years ago, it would be like this is what they did. They really cheaped out. Whereas if it's more of like this is one upside play at the absolute back end of the lineup, it's 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 a lot more palatable. Yeah. So the I mean, the, the White Sox have not been good for for quite a long time, closing in on a decade. And uh, in particular, I think over the past three years. There's been varying degrees of feelings at the start of each season that, ah, well, this is the year that they start to move move upward and like, you know, maybe maybe next year is the year they're good or maybe even this year they could surprise. And in those three years, there's maybe been like one half season that actually turned out pretty good. Otherwise, it's been pretty disappointing. And yet somehow like through those three years of disappointment, it feels like they still come out of it with a fair amount of optimism. They obviously see themselves as contenders. I think most of the world kind of sees them as contenders and a bunch of these young players have actually become stars or close to stars. So have the past three years been uh, fairly productive despite the disappointment or has it been kind of a failure on an organizational level that we're still only here to this point right now? Well, I think when they first started out, they were tearing down with Chris Sale and Jose Quintana and Adam Eaton and probably even more over the name value of those guys, they're starting tearing down with like really great contracts for all those guys in terms of value and like a lot of years of control remaining. And so a lot of what they were pushing was like, yeah, we're not the first team to rebuild or full gut tear down by any means. Obviously the Astros and Cubs have already happened, but we're tearing down with more, these great assets to jumpstart this rebuild with that. It's going to be a shorter process than ever before and and maybe they even thought it was going to take two years and maybe last year was going to be the year that they're really going to be rounding the shape because by then you could already see that you know Yon Mankata and Michael Kopech and and you know, Eloy Menos were all going to be in the majors by then slowly but surely the the rationale has broken more in terms of this is a normal rebuild and this is a normal expectations and rather than this is going to be the new most dominant rebuild ever where 
they come out of it like the Ashes and Cubs did in their primes. It's much more, well, we're in position, and if we add aggressively in free agency, we're we're going to be right among there of, of division contenders, and and we'll have a team that's oh competing for the playoffs annually for a four or five year period. Much more like the the normal reasonable scales you you see for rebuilds nowadays. Now that half the team is doing half the league is doing them at any given time. So I don't think I think that definitely is a source among the fan base that maybe the kind of, you know, sky high expectations that were set at the start of it, this was a, some special, uniquely well-plotted course has maybe been taken back to, to normal and the front office would push, hey, we always knew there'd be bumps in the road. We'd always know that some draft picks wouldn't work out. I don't know if they necessarily thought they'd have first rounders who tore their Achilles multiple times in one year, but they, they, they would say this is what we expected. Whereas I think there's some degree of, of dissonance between what, they initially thought this this rebuild in this process would be and where they're at now, where they're just one of the teams that has optimism. They have a good young core, but maybe they haven't necessarily built up a, a super deep farm system and, and, and deep uh, a major league team that's going to just crush all comers. No questions about it. Yeah, I'm trying to think like the group of teams that were in this spot three or four years ago doesn't really feel like any has built powerhouse. I'm kind of cycling through the teams in my mind. So maybe one will come to me, but there's been a bit of disappointment from that class of rebuilding teams. So uh, I don't know to what degree that's an indication that, you know, the times changed or that we had, you know, unreasonable expectations for those teams that were doing it. But more specifically to the White Sox, Rick Renteria was there for all those three years and he's still going to be there for the fourth. And I don't know if that's surprising to you or if it should be. I'm curious whether the fact that he's still still going to be there tells us anything about how the organization feels like these three years have gone. If they see them as being largely successful despite them not having having won anything. I think the terminology they've used repeatedly is that they've been giving him a knife and sending him into a gunfight for like the last three years. And that they wouldn't really judge him as a... Uh, I don't know, gunslinger based on the, the criteria or the based on the record of the, the last the results. The, the confidence in him, I think definitely given the amount of money that's spent and the natural expectations that goes into that and the fact that they're just in a contention cycle, the heat's going to turn on, on him naturally. I mean, you saw the hitting coach get fired uh, after the season based off of even while there were big steps forward for like guys like Yuan Mankata or Tim Anderson, depending on how st- stable you see Tim Anderson's improvement being. Kind of the guys, you know, your job would hinge on making sure that they hit their ceilings. Still getting fired for team performance, basically just being bad. And I think they had like the worst uh, strike on the walk ratio of all time, uh, which is easy to do nowadays with modern offense. But, you know, still not what you want. There's there's a bit more scrutiny for the results that's coming uh, along with where they're at in their cycle. But as far as actually holding Rick Renneria accountable by the fact that, you know, that 72 wins is the best they've done in these three years. It still seems like there's a very positive view of him and that the real judgment of what his capabilities are uh, are really coming now. Because even if you're including that series of the Cubs, this is the first roster of that anyone could call good that he's been handed in his managerial career. You mentioned Mancata and Anderson, and this is sort of our high BABIP hitters episode because we talked about Fernando Tatis and his 410 BABIP in the first segment. And then if you just look on the leaderboard, the next two guys, at least minimum 350 plate appearances, are Mancata and Anderson, who are right above or just below 400. So those guys had great years. To what extent was it a couple really free-swinging hitters who had the ball bounce right a bunch of times? And to what extent was it real, repeatable improvements for each of them? I think both of them, I mean, it was uh, the, the boring answer is, is both, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
I think with Tim, it's probably a bit more where you're waiting for a lot more to fall off because it's not, I mean, his play discipline is what he, if anything, he leaned in further to what he is uh, than anybody else. I think he walked like half as much as he did the previous year. And there's definitely a lot more ability to stay on breaking pitches that he added uh, with uh, straightening up his stance a little bit and, and adding some bit more of a timing mechanism. There's, there's the real mechanical things he did, and obviously he cut his strikeout rate significantly, and that will help him, with, given that the fact that he will not probably bat at uh, 400 again. Mm-hmm. But he, he's definitely more of a softer contact guy. And also, I think he's 27, something in that range, or he, you don't really necessarily see him further tapping into to upside. I think Moncada is probably more the guy that you would continue to expect to grow a little bit. You continue to expect that he, him being in an elite I think he's like top 15 exit velo type of guy. And, and the fact that he was really only kind of just honing into his approach that he was figuring out in the middle of last year. He's someone that I think his material skill set will improve enough going forward that the inevitable huge regression that he'll also get will somewhat cancel each other out a bit. Whereas I expect more. I'm wondering, yeah, what does it look like when Tim Anderson is not bad bit 400? He should always be a high bad bit guy being not fly ball oriented and, and being, you know, still at this point, probably a six year 70 runner, but it's, it seems like something is coming. And the idea that the White Sox went out and added to the offense and we're not depending on Tim Anderson winning the batting title year in year out. It was probably prudent on their part. Yeah. So those guys made at least some strides and we could talk about Lucas Giolito and the incredible turnaround he made. So there were some player development successes and breakthroughs in 2019, but I think there was a perception that that's an area where the White Sox have struggled. And I noticed that when the MVP machine came out, certain fan bases seemed to adopt it on Twitter as an example of our team is not doing this. Our team missed the boat on this player development movement. And I really noticed that White Sox Twitter seemed to embrace that idea more so than maybe any other fan base, rightly or wrongly. And I noticed that you have written a few articles on the White Sox player development changes in the past few days. So have they taken that to heart? And do you think that they've made major strides? And and was that perception that they were lacking in that area accurate? Yeah, I would probably say so. They're definitely set in their ways a bit and definitely were not quick adopters. I think if something talking to Chris Getz the other day, who obviously has had a very active role in and the, the difference between Chris Getz taking over player development and now the proliferation of seeing Edutronic and, and Rapsodo uh, everywhere in the White Sox Spring Training Complex is, is impossible to miss. So it's, it's clear what his thrust is and what he thought he needed to do upon taking over right at the start of this whole rebuild process. But I would definitely, he, one of the lo- the lines of logic he pushed was that maybe some teams did this too quickly and maybe did it before they had the infrastructure as far as communicating to the players in a useful way and having the personnel to, to kind of process it and, and apply it to directly to coaches and how they should direct players with it based off the conclusions reached from the data. So while I think no one is going to, they can't really refute the idea that they're probably one of the slower teams to it. Their position is that we, we did it more cautiously. We're blending it into our approach more than, than maybe other teams were that had faults as far as, you know, all of a sudden just overturning their entire play development department and maybe having a more grueling early transition process for how to communicate this information to players. But at the same time, they have made, I think uh, Everett Tiford is their, your, their pitching coordinator. That guy was brought in from the Astros like two years ago and was literally someone that prospects would walk up to me and say like, hey, this guy just made me 
I'd throw four seamers and curveballs now because he showed me his track my trackman data. And mm-hmm. now he's the guy who's running the whole operation. And basically anybody who has some sort of like story of prospects referring to him as like somebody who showed them something or, or showed them something based off data and uh, they changed, they altered some level of approach and they kind of improved their performance. That guy probably has a fancier title than he did two years ago with the White Sox. And that's a similar case with Ryan Johansson, who I went out to his facility a couple of days ago, and now he's the assistant hitting coordinator, and he's clearly very grounded in blast motion and hit tracks and uh, 40 motion and, and everything that you can kind of run off as, as far as informing his approach and, and how he kind of works out and the physical improvements hitters should make. So I think this is something every team is doing, obviously, to a great degree, and I wouldn't say that they're outpacing anybody, but... They're definitely actively working to catch up. And as far as the MVP machine specifically, Rick Renneria read it last August because <laughs> he had it on his desk during pregame briefing. So at least from the top end perspective, it's also bidding that I mean, it's being yeah. absorbed. And I think he said that was something that Rick Hahn, uh, assigned him to read. I had it on my desk for a long time before I read it, though. So <laughs> it's, it's not the most important thing in the world to 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 clarify, but I, I would like kind of like to have my narratives straight so going back to the player development kind of reputation that they had before my sense was was always that they were they had a bunch of prospects that they had gotten to be really good prospects and then those prospects were failing in the majors so it wasn't exactly like something in low a that was failing it was something in the majors that seemed to be failing and then uh, so you can correct me if, if that if that part of the narrative is wrong and then the second part that i had is that like once a bunch of those guys got good this year mainly moncada and giolito and you know jimenez made it to the majors and you know it wasn't the best rookie season or anything but it was obviously like not a failure and then you know kopech debuting at the end of last season there was a sense that ah in fact the White Sox had been validated. So I have never been clear whether I'm supposed to think that they were good all along and it just took a long time for the players to to reach these ceilings, but that in fact the White Sox had not ruined them or whether I'm supposed to believe that they changed something in the last 15 months that made a bunch of these players uh, do a lot better. So can you just clean up my narrative so that I can you know, go forward with a simplified view of the world that I can repeat at parties? <laughs> Well, the answer, of course, is both. They had the guys they kind of acquired in their their big teardown sales were kind of guys who were in the, I think, mostly double A, triple A, maybe some high A level as far as like Giolito only ever pitched at triple A Charlotte for the White Sox. And and Makata, I think he also only played at triple A as well for them. So those guys kind of had these, none of them were Ronald Acuna, right? None of them hit the ground running immediately, just crushed it. All of them had these very lengthy year to year and a half like acclimation processes to the majors. So that was, uh, I mean, Giolito basically remade himself as a pitcher to be effective. And he struggled kind of for a year and a half to see the strikeout numbers that you would want from a top of the rotation guy. Ronaldo Lopez is basically has two full seasons in the majors and is still kind of figuring it out. So there's, there's a bit of that are these guys being prepared for the majors type of question that comes out of that when that's habitually happening? I mean, something Tim Anderson said, Tim Anderson is probably their best draft and develop success since Chris Sale would essentially tell you like, I didn't really know what I was doing until I got to the majors. Uh, I didn't really have like a routine that was led me to success until hitting co- the major league hitting coach Todd Severson worked with them over the last couple of years. So that, that those are kind of eye opening things. The crop that I would think in terms of I'm looking at them to judge what their player development is as far as like, draft to develop or guys like Zach Collins maybe not becoming an offensive force like he was supposed to be as, as as ready of a college bat as you got 
coming out of Miami, even if you had questions about whether he would catch, which still persists, which also reflects on player development. Guys like Blake Rutherford, who um, was a you know a, ballot, a former first round pick, who they got him as low as low A, and you kind of see him not really um, ever really dominate at any point in time. Guys like Luis Basabe, and and maybe their drafts is as far as like Jake Berger, who obviously has injuries, kind of the, have sidelined that. Gavin Sheets, Luis Gonzalez, the product of their their high draft picks from the last four years. I don't think there's many kind of the guys who they've picked top five. Obviously, Andrew Vaughn and Nick Madrigal haven't had major problems, but if you have a major development war for a top five pick, it's probably a a bigger issue. I I, I think they haven't seen the the huge rewards from those four draft classes since they've started kind of tearing down that that's something you'd probably key on if you're wondering about where their player development is right now. One more thing that kind of ties together the the previous three topics, I think, all kind of go into this. If you just look at the the White Sox individual hitters walk totals last year, it's very funny. They were, as a team, last in the league uh, at about 70% of the league average walk rate. But almost everybody is is a low walk player, and particularly a low walk player for like sort of the type of hitter they are. Uh, you know, low walk for a leadoff man, low walk for a first baseman, low walk for a, you know, best player on the team, low walk for everything. Their team leader uh, had 44 walks, which like the A's and the Cardinals would have had seven different players that would have led the White Sox. And even that team leader, he's gone now, Yomer Sanchez, all, all gone. And so is this just a coincidence? Is it a something about the players that the White Sox tend to select? Is it something about the organizational hitting philosophy as it's taught in the minors or the majors? Or is it just simply a matter of like, well, when you pick the best player available from a draft or from a list of free agents, uh, sometimes they're going to be players whose games don't incorporate the walk very much, and the White Sox just happen to end up with a bunch of them. I think the players who have gotten through their uh, player development chain tend to be these uh, very like top-of-scale tooled-out athletes who mostly are there because of bat speed and raw power and not necessarily someone who got there because they had a polished approach in college and, and kind of they, they picked them for being a very super disciplined hitter. Those guys have kind of stagnated the pros. Those are someone like Zach Collins, who's kind of still stuck between triple a limbo at this point uh, in his career, or someone like Jake Berger who tore his Achilles twice in a three month span and now hasn't played since. So there's, there's both a selection bias and the type of players they have up. And maybe one of the reasons that Stevenson got low go at the end of uh, last season as their hitting coach was that, his fix for a lot of the guys who did flourish was, well, this guy is kind of natural bat speed. Let's just kind of let him loose. Let's let him be aggressive. That's really what's going to fit bet for him and, and kind of take advantage of his physical tools. And for guys like Mankata and Tim Anderson, that's great. That winds up being really kind of ringing out kind of career years for both of them. When that's the kind of method of fix that's across the entire lineup, which includes for like Alir Garcia or uh, who winds up, I guess, approaching near like 700 PAs last year or Yomer Sanchez, even though he did lead the league in walks, then you kind of have an entire lineup where the guys who aren't high-end talents, it just leads to a a larger offense that just is very deficient in this one area, and is probably why they're trying to change their approach a little bit, and also why they gave uh, their biggest contract ever to Yasmani Grandal. So where does Giolito fit into all of this? Because he had one of the most striking turnarounds of any player. He went from probably the worst full-season starter in baseball to one of the best, a seven-win swing, roughly, depending on the war that you use. So 
was this driven by the White Sox? Was it driven by himself and his former coach who I, I think he consulted? And is there any concern about this being a sustainable thing because uh, the results have been so dramatically different in his two first full seasons? I mean, Lucas himself would give a lot of credit or would immediately say that Don Cooper is a great pitching coach and that he that his delivery overhaul unlocked a lot of things that he and Cooper are trying to do and that the White Sox are so much more like Cooper, who I think has been the pitching coach since 2003, is so much more day oriented than he was 17 years ago and that they should be commended for that. But yes, as you pointed out, the big key the one could easily say that it's a quick cause and effect relationship that Lucas Giolito went to his old high school pitching coach who now Ethan Katz is with the Giants I think he's on the major league staff this year completely reworked his delivery motion then came back basically ready-made as this now elite pitcher and that doesn't seem like the most sustainable path for every White Sox pitcher to go work with a pitching coach for the San Francisco Giants probably can't get that hookup uh, as easily so (laughs) Giolito is kind of a weird aberration that I don't necessarily think you can say every every White Sox pitcher is going to follow the the Lucas Giolito path as, as far as the kind of their own success story they're still kind of waiting for it they're, they're kind of Dylan Cease I think when they first got him was in low A and was very much someone who had huge command questions and he definitely progressed as, as you would want to see a Dylan Cease progress through their minor league system but obviously there's no major league success of any kind to really kind of ground your your confidence in the White Sox development I, I think they've had a bunch of uh college sinker slider guys they've drafted in in the last couple of years that they've kind of altered the approach for and seen some good results, but it's early. Like Jonathan Stever had a great year in high A last year, but he's not even a top hundred prospect at this point. Jimmy Lambert, they probably turned him from being like a complete non-prospect into somebody who could be a back end arm, but then he got Tommy John. So their success stories are under the surface. There's there's some signs that they they that both with the approach that you've seen Tford installing in the minor leagues a lot. Um, that they're they're making some inroads, but as because of Tommy Johns to different guys, Dane Dunning, Michael Kopech, obviously uh, would be people that they could tout as kind of progress through the system. You haven't really seen that big how the White Sox pitching pipeline will work yet, and you know if part of it is that everyone's getting Tommy John, then that's another factor to to consider as well. So Sam mentioned the Kopech comeback. So what can we expect from him this year? Will he have any limitations, restrictions, and what will his role look like? So the White Sox method towards this is what they applied to Dylan Cease last year. It's kind of instead of having a shutdown for guy at a certain point of the season, it's start them late so you don't have to shut them down. So they're going to probably ration this inning in some way. I think his Kopech's career high is around 130, 140, something like that. They, they're not going to increase it by much more than 30 or 40. So by doing that, they'll have him throw really lightly in spring. It probably won't be near as built up as anybody else by the time the season starts he'll continue to to probably ramp up a little bit in Arizona he'll probably have a couple rehab starts in 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 Charlotte and by the end of April he's ready to go they have five starters at this moment the idea that they'd get through all spring training and be the end of the first month of the season and they wouldn't have a need for a sixth is pure fantasy so I think they're expecting him to just kind of slide into rotation and not really hopefully not have any limitations beyond that because of the fact that he did throw an instruction, we saw all his velocity and stuff mostly back. There's a, there's a little bit less speculation about how it will look, other than the fact that obviously he doesn't have any command yet. But he's expected to basically be somebody who is a ready-made starter, ready to resume his career as it was proceeding before he went down, basically by the end of April. 
so uh, Pakoda came out this week, and according to Pakoda, Luis Robert, who has not played in the majors, is the 19th best player in the world for this year, that he projects to have the 19th best war in the majors this year, uh, which is not, I mean, everybody knows he is an elite prospect, but elite prospects don't always have elite projections. Joe Adele, for instance, projects to be the 2,213th best player in the world this year. And even Gavin Lux is only 111th, but Luis Robert, 19th. So I'm just curious if that is the sort of thing that you nod vigorously and take to your superiors, or whether you kind of roll your eyes a little bit and think, ah, yeah, we're still kind of in this phase of not being able to tell the future, but maybe someday. He's probably a pretty unique case in that he was more in a position to just absurdly juice his own statistics and thus mess up projection engines than most prospects are. Given the, his level of professional experience in Cuba, obviously there was a huge like layoff between him dominating Cuba as like an 18-year-old and uh, actually getting to play at a sustained level in the U.S., both because of the all the all that happens with defecting and the fact that he was just had a thumb injury for like all of 2018 that like, I think I think he sprained the same thumb, like within millimeters of the same spot in the ligament, like twice uh, in 2018 season. So he had no business in being in high a at any point in 2019. And so once he was there, cause he had previously been bad at the level cause he was hurt. He put up the most absurd. It was basically like if he dropped a ready made a somewhat major league ready, elite prospect in high a and he just hit like 450 with like insane power for a month and a similar thing happened in double a we probably really didn't even like start to see any kind of realistic projection of what Luis robert would look at a higher level or what problems he could even have against higher level competition and still until he got to triple a charlotte and at that point you were also putting a, a plus power or maybe double plus power prospect in the most hitter friendly park in triple a with the juice ball. So you still didn't get like statistically sane results of any kind at that was probably the level where you saw maybe some of his potential plate disposition issues. And the fact that he just kind of really is cutting at everything and has a high progressive approach and dives out to the outer half all the time and does it because he can hit the ball out of the ballpark. Uh, well off balance like that all the time. But yeah, I think Pocota projections are probably overstating them because he just has this insane statistical record that he built entirely in 2019. And there's probably going to be a large acclimation process of both kind of being tested and being spammed with breaking balls, much of the way Eloy Jimenez, who was someone that was kind of expected to dominate right off the bat last year, didn't. And the fact that he just kind of ran like crazy uh, with no, because I, I think he stole over 30 bases last season because he had just this permanent green light that, that even that element of his profile it doesn't necessarily translate to how it operate in Major League Baseball. So, so I think there's, I think he's more of a extremely toolsy and but probably someone who should be thought of and I wouldn't say raw because he played professionally, but raw in the terms that he hasn't been tested or he hasn't been forced to kind of fine tune anything or, or add more discipline by any level that he's faced so far, and it'll probably happen for the first time in the first half of the, the 2020 season. So you called Robert a unique case. I want to ask you about another unique case, Nick Madrigal, who I think, other than my perennial obsessions, Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, I may be looking forward to Nick Madrigal's season more so than any other players. So how soon will that season start at the big league level, and what will it look like? Which I know is a very tough question to answer, because that's something that divides a lot of prospect people. So I don't expect you to know, but what do you think, and what do you think the consensus is? 
I think, I mean, I think it starts pretty soon. Uh, pretty much the reason that they don't have a real starting second baseman right now is that it's a given that Madrigal is probably going to be up by the end of April or early May and basically be the starting second base from there on out, which both lowered the White Sox motivation to sign a second baseman and lowered the motivation of second baseman looking for real jobs and not just one month placeholder gigs uh, to sign with the White Sox. But uh, yeah, I don't really know because on one hand, you've got a guy who has below average power and seems to make a, a heck of weak contact all the time and probably has below average like exit velocities as, as a minor leaguer to someone that every scout says like this is the smartest, most thoughtful, most rugged, most competitive player with his this supernatural contact ability and also as as thoughtful and as as ability to hit against defenses and kind of scheme how he's going to attack and just kind of find singles wherever they can possibly be wrung out of at all times. So it's about whether or not you believe in the fact that like, hey, 70 contact tool and 30 power isn't a great offensive profile with absolutely like no, just an absurd hyper-aggressive approach against major league pitching doesn't sound that great. Or if you just believe in the general legend of Nick Madrigal, who is someone who is going to hit in the high 300s in perpetuity until like the day he's put in the ground. I'm probably <laughs> tilted a little bit more towards the latter end. I want to believe. Yeah, I, I want to believe he's just a delightfully insane person in terms of his competitiveness. I've never seen someone as close to like getting thrown out of a spring training game or ever kind of declined to be interviewed after a spring training game because he's too upset said about the loss. That was That's just <laughs> extremely charming to me <laughs> because of how like unhinged it is but he's just got a very tantalizing skill set that you you, it's kind of like the way that you want to see someone with Willens Astadio's skill set succeed or right or or the way you'd want to see uh Pat Van Dyke um I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right succeed anybody with this like very very extremely unique skill set who's kind of just writing it somewhat to the detriment of maybe other things that are valued in the majors you, you kind of want to see that happen you want to see the guy who can be so good at this one thing that it just subsumes everything else and right Everyone says Madrigal can do that, so uh, I, I'd like to see it. Yeah. Williams with some speed and some walks. Yes, please. I, I want to see more of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so last thing I wanted to ask, I think, is about the two other transactions that we haven't really talked about, Abreu and Mazzara. So Mazzara is certainly someone who is in need of a Mancata or Anderson or Giolito-like jump. He's kind of been stuck on 20 homers or so for every year in his career, and that has gotten progressively less impressive by the year as the ball has gotten livelier and livelier. So what are the prospects for him actually making good on his former potential? And then with Abreu, the White Sox signed him to that three-year, $50 million extension, which they didn't need to do. He accepted the qualifying offer, right? And they could have just said, we'll see what happens here. So what is it about Abreu? Is it a clubhouse presence, leadership, mentor type thing that makes him more valuable than his more recent stats would suggest? Jose Abreu has the wonderful tool that all baseball players should strive to have, which is that the owner of his team likes him a lot and (laughs) wants him to never leave. And the contract is certainly in terms of a more shrewd interpretation of what the value of an aging first baseman who has declining effectiveness against right-handed pitching is worth. And even in the like kind of traditional mold of maybe what that profile was valued at maybe five, 10 years ago, 
is getting a very, very nice payday. And I, I think it's pretty clear that it's a kind of a reward. It's kind of a thank you for your service a little bit uh, as far as him getting to the rebuild and just him valuing him as the, the face of the franchise and uh, acknowledging just like what a success he was in the first six years when they took this big risk on him and how he delivered everything to their expectations that they could be. Since it was done at the start of the offseason, before anybody knew that the White Sox were actually going to go and knock out all these other needs, I think the initial reaction to it was definitely a lot more like, what on earth are you doing? Why are you exhausting all these resources towards this one guy who's kind of more of, you know, he's a, he's a fine starting first baseman. He's not making your team worse or anything, but like you're, you're valuing him as this big like plus added surplus value player, and he's, he's not that. But the fact that they went out and, you know, kind of did go out and be aggressive for the rest of the offseason makes you a little bit more shrug your shoulders on basically giving a, a thank you card of a contract to, you know, a longtime first baseman. As far as Mazzara, at the time when they landed him, you know, Han was very rational about trying to talk him up, which is saying like, hey, yes, we know he hasn't produced. He is a guy who's traditionally been, you know, good against right-handed pitching. He's like a one-ton WC plus last year against right-handed pitching. He's going to hit towards the bottom of the order. You know, if we platoon him, he'll help. You know, it's obviously a huge like addition, but not a bad thing to put out there in, in certain matchups. Yes, we have a little faith that the upside will come out and you know, we'll tap into a little bit more of what we expected Nomar Mazzara to be. But, you know, let's just judge him for what he is. We think it'll help. Coaching staff is a lot more, wow, this guy is so great. He's 24. He hasn't even, like, tapped into what he could be yet. We're going to get so much out of him. We're not even going to platoon him that much either because we think he hit left-handed pitching. We're going to have, once our coaches get a hold of him, there's going to be this big transformation. So I, I think that probably makes you a little bit more one that explains more that why they prioritize this move over saying Nicholas Castellanos or Marcelo Zuna or, or other of the available corner outfield solutions, why they, they dropped on this one, that they have some faith that they can tap them out. But it also makes you anxious in how they'll use them and maybe they'll burn themselves chasing this dream of what Nomar Mazzara was supposed to be more than just kind of using him for a small role that he has proven that he could be you know useful for. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we always end with the same question, which is putting our guest on the spot and asking for a win total prediction, which is kind of tough in the White Sox case. I think regardless of how good they are, they should be fun to follow, at least from my perspective. We've brought up a lot of players who are fun, who are coming off fun seasons and who are very intriguing. We didn't even really talk about Jimenez and looking forward to his sophomore season. I was disappointed that he got hurt because it seemed like he had really finally found his stride and his stroke. So this will be a fun team, maybe regardless, but I think White Sox fans are ready for this team to start winning. So will this be the year, do you think, and what number do you foresee? I'm going to predict the greatest record for the franchise in a decade, which would be 86 wins. Uh huh. Okay. And I I base that strongly on the Royals and Tigers providing ample assistance. (laughs) Yeah, that helps. (laughs) All right. Well, this has been fun. You can follow James on The Athletic, of course, and at The Athletic Chicago. You can also find him on Twitter at JRFegan. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for having me. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Once you're there, you can sign up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. Enrique Wallace, Luke Y., Andrew Rhodes, Falafel, 
and Katie Razor. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We'll be back with two more team previews next time. I believe it will be the Cubs and the Diamondbacks. So have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you then. Switch it up.